Today, I'm pleased to have Ralph Acampora on the podcast. Ralph started on Wall Street in 1967. He literally taught Wall Street technical analysis at the New York Institute of Finance. He was a permanent panelist on the very popular TV show, Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. He worked as the director of technical research for Kidder Peabody, Prudential Securities, and Knight Capital. He's one of the founders of the Chartered Market Technicians Association, which literally defined the field of technical analysis in the investment industry. He has a market history perspective, and he has a high-level understanding of the markets. So I hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Market Call Show, where we discuss what's happening in the markets and the impact on your investments. Tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's been a while since we've talked. Yes, quite a while. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing? Good. I'm doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. Miss New York, I have to say. Going, going. We haven't been in New York for a while for oh. the uh, for meetings. Yeah. So, yeah, but, I'm out in Minnesota, and I miss New York for one reason only: food. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you miss? I want my pastrami sandwich, my bagels. Uh, you know, all that good pizza. <laughs> all the good stuff. So I, well, I, I, it's good to talk to you again. I uh, really wanted to have you come on my podcast because you've got one of the most interesting backgrounds on, in Wall Street and um, have had a big contribution to Wall Street. And I think you have a lot of wisdom, clearly, that um, both individual and institutional investors could um, could benefit from. You're being very kind now. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I remember the last time uh, we actually were together, uh, I, I think I, we actually spoke together at a University of Denver fall conference a long time ago, back in 2015. Wow. Yeah. Can you believe how fast time, time is flying? It's like that. Amazing. Amazing. I was going to ask you, when you were doing research, director of equity research for Prudential and what was the biggest thing that you felt that investors were asking you for? Was it just direction of the market? I mean, what were they really relying on you for? And how did you feel like you were adding the most value for them at that time? Well, that's a wonderful question. Uh, the firm, Prudential and Kidder Peabody, uh, insisted that Ralph, you're talking to the audience. We want you to be longer term, intermediate, longer term. Okay. So when I was doing my weekly market, weekly market letter, I would be looking out several months. Okay. So I'd be more weekly and monthly statistics. However, obviously there's a, a clientele that wants, Hey, what do you think of the next couple of days? And we would have a daily technical market letter. I had a young fellow who was doing the daily work. And of course, I, we'd overlap and talk to each other always. But uh, he was more interested in the next few days or few weeks. And, and there's an audience for that. So, um, But strictly speaking, I was intermediate to longer term oriented as, a, as a, an advisor, an investment advisor. That's... That's the mode of mode mode that I took, and uh, I, I it it uh, it was the you know you you say the the prudential days. Uh, 
I was very, very lucky. Well, let me back up. Um, the organization that we, Johnny Brooks and I started, the Market Technicians Association, the first evening dinner meeting that we had, Johnny and I were sitting next to a man by the name of Ken Ward. Ken Ward was, this is 1970, Ken was probably 80 years old or very close to it. So that meant he lived through every bull and bear market in the 20th century up to that evening. Mm. And most of them he wrote about. So I leaned over and I said, Mr. Ward, sir, what was the most difficult market you ever had to live with, live through? And then I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Ward, that's a stupid question. It has to be the crash in 1929. And he said to me, no, young man, that was not the toughest market. I said, what? He said, oh, don't get me wrong. We lost some money. But the toughest market was in the early 60s. I said, but Mr. Ward, it went up. He said, it did. And most of us fought it all the way up. We couldn't believe that the market kept saying overbought, overbought, overbought. We were looking for a correction. You, should go, you go and read the Wall Street Journal. You'll see a lot of technicians in there talking about the market needing to pull back. I never forgot that. Mm. And 25 years later, the early 90s, the market started moving up. 19, no, it had a bear market. And then it started in 92. Uh, 94, 95, it started mm -hmm. moving up and I, and I, and it wasn't correcting. And I, I went back and I read every wall street journal, I went to the New York public library. I read every wall street journal between 1960 and 1966. And cause I've, I remembered the conversation I had with Ward mm. and, uh, Sure, there were enough. There was markets overbought. They're going to correct. And they kept saying that and it didn't. And what I found out, which was interesting then, and at the time that I was doing this research, is we had something in common, low inflation, low interest rates. And that was the theme of my letter. So technical analysis forced me to go back in history and find out why this market is so stubborn on the upside. And I found the answer. And I wrote this 58-page report called Dow 7000. Everybody thought I was out of my mind that Dow was at 4,000. And this ding-dong is saying it's going at 4,000, 7,000. I was wrong. It didn't take three years. It did it in two years. <laughs> Amazing. And no, technical analysis forces you to go back and find out what. Have we seen this before? And I'm sorry for the long-winded answer. No, that was that was. I remember that report when it came out. Oh, it, it circulated did. everywhere. Uh, oh, I actually, yeah. I actually had a Prudential broker who sent it to me. Really? And, uh, yeah, and he's not supposed to do that. I don't think. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, because the Prudential brokers got your stuff, and um, sure, sure. and uh, and well, a lot of people, you know, obviously subscribe to that. But I, and I remember how that that uptrend. That was that fits right into what I was telling you before, where the fundamentals were telling us it shouldn't go up either because yeah. the valuations were were very rich. Yeah. So um, yeah, and and but yet we had a massive bull, and then, and then when yeah, it and then after, when it cracked, no one believed it. Then after it hit seven thousand, about six months later, I raised it to ten. So I caught the whole late nineties. Yeah, that was a great call. That was a great call. Oh yeah, you know that that's that 
I don't want to give you the good calls. I won't give you my bad calls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We've all had bad calls. But I, <laughs> I, I, I was going to ask you actually, what was what, what were you going to attribute your success to those good calls? And you've just answered it for me because it, it sounds to me like it's just doing some homework. You have to be a market historian. You have to understand context and at least try your best. Nothing, well, no period is exactly like a prior period, but well, you can learn from those prior periods. The, pro the problem is as a tech technical analyst. I can't just give a number without some kind of a fundamental or an economic, some kind of a reason that the, the viewing audience, the readers would understand. If I just said, well, the, the moving average suggests this, I, I, I'd only be talking to a very small portion of my off, off, audience at that time. And uh, by combining it and doing the research, uh, and again, I got to tell you, <laughs> I was coughing a lot doing all that research looking at those newspapers sorry so you yeah. said you were you you were coughing a lot oh yeah reading that i was doing my research in the library going through all those old newspapers i mean <laughs> today you go online you got on your telephone on your <laughs> cell phone you can do the research it's uh, how how wonderfully the world has changed yeah so what would you say some of the biggest investment lessons you've had that you think you know individual investors should hear right now don't get i, th I think it's very important to be flexible you know i'm assuming you know you do your reading and you know, your research and you know you put money in the market at a certain time and uh, certain sectors that you like. And I, I respect that. That's, that's exactly what we should be doing, the fundamental and technical work. And as an old time technician said to me, never fight the primary trend. And mm -hmm. if for whatever reason it starts to change and starts to get ugly, you have to be flexible enough to change. That's the optimum word. Um, you know, we don't like to admit that we're wrong at times. Uh, so uh, I say uh, you got you got to be flexible. And if you have to adjust or take a, a, a quick loss, uh, just put in those mental stops. And, you know, that's that's what I think technical analysis. That's the greatest part of technical analysis, that uh, you make a decision based on your, your research. But uh, at some point, you got to figure if it goes down to this level, I have to uh, uh, lighten up or just get out of the market. Mm -hmm. You got to have the discipline. Yeah, I, technical I, I, gives you the discipline. I agree with you totally. Do you do you remember a gentleman by the name of uh, uh, Brandt, Peter Brandt? Right. Yeah, no, he's he's uh, he's still around. He was in Colorado for a while. Um, he's a, a great technician, a real, a real money manager, a real, you know, good performance, purely classical technical analyst. Um, I, actually I saw a transcript. He spoke to the CMT association, I believe in New York. It wasn't called the CMT yeah. association back then, but way, way, yeah. way, way, way back. Uh, but he was never really a member of the CMT, but he's a classical um, chartist. And that, that's one of the things that he said that the number one thing is it's not the entry signal that helps me make these great returns, which he has made over the years. Um, but it's more of just this risk management. 
and uh, I, that, he's had a, a big influence on me as well. He's one of those technicians, and there's a lot of them that you don't really hear about, but who's really great and has done spectacular in the market over the years. So um, mm -hmm. that's, that's really good to hear. Wow. Well, um, I mean, I was just looking at your bio again, and it and uh, it's it's interesting. You know, you were on, you've been on Wall Street since 1967. That's a long time. Uh, no, you're not there now, obviously, or you're, but you you have been, and you were there for five decades. And the interesting thing, one of the interesting things that I find is that you've taught so many people at the New York Institute of Finance. Yes, that um, that was a major breakthrough, and. Uh, Number one for the subject is that was in Wall Street. That was the school of Wall Street. I taught all the traders. I taught the portfolio managers, the public, and I enjoyed it. And I made lots of friends. And uh, yeah, that was, I, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Was there any students that kind of stuck out, stuck out in your mind during those years? Oh, well, sure. Um uh, Frank Texera was an analyst at Merrill Lynch, a technical analyst. And uh, we became friends. And job opening up in Boston, the Wellington Fund, they, they, the fellow that was running the in-house technical fund had passed away. Bill Diani was his name. And I encouraged Frank to take the job and then became a very famous uh, portfolio. Uh, and, and he ran a, a very serious and uh, very successful venture. Uh, that's one fellow. Um, uh, let me think of uh, Anthony Scaramucci, the, the politician that you see. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a student of mine. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, John Murphy, who is the author of uh, one of the fine books on, on intermarket analysis, was a student of mine. Uh, Louise Yamada, uh, you remember Louise on, sure. uh, uh, she was very, very, uh, uh, successful and a wonderful, wonderful market forecaster. She was also a student of mine and, uh, yeah. On, I guess. yeah, you know, Louise is, is, is a, she's so amazing with her communication skills. I sat next to her at a conference, uh, before the interest rate rise and she, she kind of, and she's a relatively small lady. She looked, yeah. came over to me. She said, interest rates are about to go up a lot. <laughs> and she was right. <laughs> what was this? This was at a CMT association meeting. It was an annual conference symposium. Oh, wow. She was right there up front. And this was, she was a year before ahead of time, but she was like, yeah, this is it. This is the bottom. And she, and she sat there, she was sitting there with these charts on her desk yeah. or on the, on the, uh, you know, the table. Yeah. And she yeah. was just kind of pointing to some things, and she has a very long-term perspective. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, behind her, behind her analysis. Um, speaking, speaking of the CMT organization, guess what? Next year we're going to celebrate our fiftieth anniversary. Wow, boy, that's going to be. You got to go to that one. It'll be in Definitely. New York. Uh, I can't wait. In fact, um, I just got off the conference call with. Uh, uh, several other people at the organization were putting a book together talking about the history how it got started um myself and a young analyst by the name of johnny brooks uh we were co-founded the organization at a at a sheer frustration because we couldn't get accepted by the f 
technical uh, by the fundamental community in those days. They looked down on technicians in the late sixties, and mm -hmm. we said, "Well, we could still do it on our own," and we, <laughs> and we did. You know and what? Then, that was. I, I'm glad you brought up uh, John Brooks. Yeah. In fact, one of my questions I had when preparing for this was to ask a little bit about him because one one time he came to Denver. And uh, and I asked him to come and speak to the local chapter. I was the president of the local chapter at the time. And this was before the dot-com bubble exploded. Wow. And he uh, and I said, you know, hey, can you speak at the Prudential building? We had options, uh, you know, uh, availability at the Prudential building downtown. He's like, sure. He came up and he just flew in and he and he yeah. brought his bag with him. Yeah. And he was such a nice guy. I remember talking to him for an hour or so afterwards. Oh, yeah. But you know what? I, I I don't I don't hear people talking about him very much. Can you tell me a little bit about him? I've always been curious more about John. Uh, I was uh, about 27 years old when we met. Johnny and I met. He was a couple of years younger than me. Maybe he was about 25. And I met him on the receiving line every morning. You had to go to a company called Morgan Rogers Roberts. It was right on Broadway, right near this exchange, and had to get our point and figure update sheets because they had the price reversals. And, and so he was doing point and figure. I was doing point and figure. And that's how we met. He was a feisty little Irishman. And uh, we were part of the, we were junior members of the New York Society of Fundamental Analysts. And it was there that uh, we were frustrated because we weren't allowed to go to a lot of the meetings because we were mere chartists. I mean, mm. literally, I mean, they people say, well, you're in the back of the bus. Heck, we weren't even on the bus, you know. <laughs> and um, what really what really bothered Johnny and I uh, were actually we were jealous because the fundamental analysts like the chemical analysts would meet. Uh, periodically, or the drug analysts, or the food analysts, or the auto analysts. And we were saying, well, gee, why don't technical analysts get together and meet monthly? And uh, that was the start of, uh, uh, of the organization, because we wanted to bring like-minded people together. and was never done before. And mm -hmm. I went back to my boss, Alan Shaw, the famous Alan Shaw, mm -hmm. and he went to Bob Farrell. At Merrill Lynch. Bob Farrell was rated number one II technician at the time, and and uh, um, uh, Alan Shaw was rated number two. These were, and for Johnny and I to get these two competitors to get together to sit at the same table to talk was a big deal. <laughs> and after about a half an hour, we all left. He said, "Well, no one's got the holy grail. Let's do more about this." And that's how it got started. It was just. Uh, this wonderful experience. And Johnny was very, very active in the first couple of years. Well, throughout the whole thing. But the uh, first couple of years, he uh, uh, he uh, did a lot of the footwork for Bob Farrell, who was our first president. Mm -hmm. And then when Alan became the second president, I had to do a lot of the running around for Alan. And I mean, we loved it. And we got to meet all the existing. And what was great was that our monthly meetings we brought in famous technicians that we read about no one's ever met the first uh, major technician was Edson Gould he was the oh, big wow. guy oh Edson mm -hmm. Gould and uh, 
you know, wow, we were all sitting there. And I, uh, there's a picture, I believe, of Bob Farrell staring up at Edson Gould with his mouth open like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of the technicians were kind of all over the place, doing their oh. own thing independently, some publishing you know, uh, pieces of work. So that's kind of how you got to know them. But, yeah. but the process of actually becoming an organization, oh. you got, you were critical in actually making that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the organization, yeah. Yes. That's exactly what it did. There was a guy by the name of Joe Granville. Remember Joe Granville? Right. The, uh, uh, on balance volume indicator. I think he lived in Kansas and we had him, we flew him into the East coast to, to uh, one of our annual seminars, uh, A.J. Frost, uh, the, uh, the Canadian who was the famous Elliott Wave, uh, we had him at, a, at a, one of our annual conferences. And it was there that uh, Bob Prechter really got involved. I, I, Prechter was following Elliott Wave, but it, he never met A.J. Frost. And, you know, so mm. we're putting all these people together. It was awesome stuff. Yeah. And, that, and now today you see... Uh analysts all over the place, portfolio managers talking about these things, and they're now more uh, cohesive and, and institutionalized as a field, as a discipline. Yes. And uh, so that that's really a, a big contribution, I think. And one of the things that I was just going to ask you was, you know, a lot of people don't even know what technical analysis is. So let's, oh, can we just back up just for a second? Absolutely. And, and can we just say, right in my mouth. yes, can you tell me in your words what how you would define it? Well, oh, technical analysis? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to com compare it to fundamental analysis. And I, I put the two of them together. I call it fusion analysis. You need both. If you're going to do real research, quality research, you need to have an idea of what the company is about, what the price earnings ratio is. Is it overvalued or undervalued historically? You know, uh, what the products are, how good is the management, uh, do they pay a dividend? This is knowing the company. But there's a part two to this entity. It's called the stock. And the stock is the price of the stock. What's the price? Is it going up, down? Is it flat? Got to look at the movement of price. And the next thing you want to look at is volume. Is there volume coming into a rising stock and if you see a lot of volume as the stock's going up in price that shows me that there's a lot of demand for the stock there's a lot of commitment uh we call that momentum and vice versa if you saw a lot of volume on the way down you go hey wait something's going on people want to get out so i'd like to see the flow of funds i call that volume analysis and of course the psychology uh the is the public over bullish or too bearish? Uh, you know, there's lots of ways of looking at the psychology. Today they call it behavioral finance. That's part two. <laughs> That's the, so now you got the company. You, you you know what to buy, and technical will tell you when to buy. Matt, Matt, and that's why I call it fusion. Now you pull those two things together, and I think you get a better chance of. Uh, uh, calling the right uh, right moves. And uh, the simple definition of technical analysis is the study of supply and demand, buyers versus mm -hmm. sellers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's it's, it's, it's confusing to a lot of people, but it's really pretty a ba basic concept, and it's a very important concept. 
Um, without getting into a long story, I, I went full surf, circle with that because I started in the technical field. Then when I got a, a real job, they wanted me to have a CFA, and then I kind of got pushed into fundamental, right? Sure. And, and, and then I, I, I quickly reversed back when the dot-com bubble was bursting. I was, seeing, I was seeing all this technical stuff saying I didn't need to be buying any of this stuff. Oh, yeah. you know, and before it bursted and the markets were moving higher, all the fundamental stuff was saying, hey, everything's undervalued. Don't buy it. But my technicals were saying, stay with the trend. Yeah. And uh, and then you you learn. I think the longer you do it, you you can you can learn what when to rely on the technicals more. And in today's environment, is a good prime example of that. Yeah. Um, you know why you need it. But you know, uh, what, one of the things is interesting. One time we were having dinner. You probably don't remember this. And and you said that you were actually early on, like I think before you got into technical work, that you were actually thinking about maybe even going into the clergy. Is that that? Did I hear oh, that? Do I remember that right? Yes, yes, I was in this. The uh, I was studying in the seminary for the Archdiocese of New York City uh, for three years, um, and on Mother's Day in 1967, I went home to see my parents, and of course to see mom. Mm -hmm. And my father gives me the keys to his brand new car. He said, "If you put a scratch on it, I'll kill you." Car was five days old. I got hit by a trailer truck, 40 tons at 50 miles an hour. Wow. I almost died. In fact, I was in and out of consciousness for a week. Mm. I wind up having major surgery, spinal fusion. I was in a body cast for three months in the hospital. Mm. And my father's very good friend who got me this fabulous surgeon, his name was Bill Downey, my father's friend. It was a Wall Street guy. And every day while I was lying in bed, I was like an inverted turtle. He would throw whatever he was reading in the bed. The Wall Street Journal, Forbes magazine, The Economist and stuff like that. And I was reading it, reading it, reading it. And I said to him, I said, boy, I enjoy this stuff. He said, oh, that's research. Uh, and I wasn't going back to the seminary because I couldn't even walk. And I didn't, uh, lots of things that happened. And uh, he said, well, when, once you get off your crutches, uh, he says, I'll uh, take you down to Wall Street. And that's how I got started. He, uh. he couldn't get me a job. And I and the, there was an ad in the Wall Street Journal. It said, junior analyst wanted no experience necessary. Because <laughs> everybody he got me to meet said, you're a nice young man, go home, patted me on the head, you go home, get an MBA, come back, we'll give you a job as an analyst. And, I, you know, I had sure. no background. And uh, when I I was still on crutches, and I, I went for this job interview, and uh, the guy was afraid I was going to hit him over the head with my crutch. I said, I want the job, I'll wash windows and clean the floors. He said, relax, relax. And he handed me a book, said, you read this book over the weekend, come in Monday, you have a job. And the book changed my life, it was the technical analysis of the stock market by Edwards and McGee. Mm -hmm. And it's and all, it's history from there. And <laughs> I, as I kept plotting, I said, well, gee, I don't know anything about corn or IBM, but I, I could tell you if, if it's going up or down, is that important? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. But and your career progression. So you went. Uh, you worked for Kidder Peabody, Prudential, Knight Capital. 
uh, you know, I remember you mostly from the Prudential years. Uh, yeah. That's kind of when I, when, um, you know, and, and I, I watched you on Wall Street Week all the time. Yes. That was a big part of your, uh, you know, you were a regular me member there. What was that like? What was a daily routine like working, you know, uh, or, or being on that show? What was yeah. It? Well, first of all, it, the Wall Street Weeks with Louis Rukeyser started mm -hmm. in 1970, just as I got in the business. I was invited on the show to be a, uh, a guest speaker, uh, one of the weekly guest speakers, uh, in 1978. Uh, they couldn't get – Lou wanted to do uh, a show on Dow Theory. And Richard Russell, Russell, the living guru of Charlie Dow, was living in La Jolla, California for, for a reason, and uh, he, he didn't want to come to New York. Uh, or, or Owings Mills, Maryland is where the show was uh, recorded. Um, and they found out that that I, uh, on Wall Street, was the Dow theorist, too. And I wrote a lot about Dow theory, and a lot of people read my stuff because of that. And uh, so I got on the show. And Lou is a very bright guy tough man you know he really asked some good questions and mm -hmm. he was uh very very well respected by everybody and uh in 1981 he invited me to become a full full-time panelist and i was on that show for 23 years i gotta tell you one interesting story when i became a panelist in 1981 there was they had an indicator called the Elves Indicator on Wall Street Week. Mm -hmm. and when I got to know, you know, after a year or so, uh, I got to know Lou pretty well. We went out to dinner one night and I said to him, Lou, where did you get the word elf from? And he said, I made it up. I said, you made it up? Why? And what he said was so profound to me. He said, I don't think my viewing audience knows what you guys do for a living. I could never forget that. He was absolutely right. And uh, you know what? Today, you would think that Ralph Acapur would be very excited listening to all these talking heads on television talking about Fibonacci, Liberace numbers and support <laughs> levels and resistance levels, drawing these crazy lines on the chart. I should be happier. But you know what? I don't think the viewing audience knows what these guys are talking about. They no. really don't. But now, that's why the CMT <coughs> organization is so important. We got to keep pushing the subject <coughs> and get it. It's accredited, you know. It's accepted by the by the establishment, the SEC. That was the biggest, the most important date for me in modern technical analysis history is Friday, December seventeenth, two thousand and four, when myself and three other guys, market technicians, went in front of SEC lawyers and we defended technical analysis we stood up and said we are our body of knowledge is as valid as fundamental analysis and three months later or four months later march of 2005 the sec came out and they said a fundamental analyst as a cfa a technical analyst as a cmt and these are accredited and they treated equally and they great. Mm -hmm. I'm and now today on the regulatory forms, you have a C, if you have a CMT, then you don't have to take a Series 65. It's it's That's just right. like a CFA now, which Good. is you know what it should be. That's right.
Yeah. That's, that's, that really, was that's part of the Sarbanes-Oxley law that came out in January of 2004 that said that all analysts, including myself, of course, had to take these two tests, series 86 and 87. And that's, if I didn't, I, I couldn't be an analyst on Wall Street. And I was like, you got to mm. be kidding. I've been here for 40 years and now you're telling me I, I wasted my time. And that's when the, the CMT organization, uh, just we fought the battle. And, um, right. Yeah. Now, and there know? was a series, there was a series of, uh, of obstacles that were overcome over yeah. the years. Oh, yeah. uh, I remember when I first joined, let's see, I joined in 1986. I believe. And, and it was a relatively small organization and it was a very close knit group of people, mostly in New York. And yeah. so, so for me coming and at the time I was living in Texas to come out of nowhere, it was like, well, you got to get sponsored. And it's like, okay. So it took a while. And finally Phil Roth said, okay, fine. After I bugged, I build, I bugged Phil Roth so hard for so many, for so long. Good. He needs <laughs> to <laughs> yeah, and now it's 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 uh it's 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 a thank God it's easier for people to get going, and the discipline has become more uh, fluid and global. I mean, it's yeah. it's a global thing. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, shift gears a little bit, if we can, talking about kind of market history. Like today, a lot of people are wondering. You know, you're you're a market historian, really. You, I mean, you even draw the Dow on the side of your barn. I mean, yes. I mean that's that's pretty incredible. Oh, that's uh, wonderful. You should send me a picture of that. I'll put it on the podcast. Well, you know, if you go on YouTube, go on YouTube and dial 50 Years on Wall Street, and okay. you will get a 15-minute interview, Dave Keller, that's uh, chart stocks, stock charts. Uh, he interviewed me, and we walked around the barn, and you will see all of it, all the history, yeah. I'll and, put that on the show notes so people can can, can yeah, see that. Yeah, yeah, they should. It's it's if you love history, I you know, I in in 2017 um uh, I turned to my lovely wife Rosemary. I said, "You know, this is my 50th year on Wall Street, 1967-2000. I'd like to hand paint the the monthly bar chart of 50-year history of and she said, yeah, the north wall of the barn could do that. There are no windows. And I said, yep. And as I was finishing it, the Wall Street Journal called. And they said, hey, this is the largest chart of the Dow anywhere. And we want to come and do an article. I said, well, wait. I said, if you wait until the Dow goes to 24,000, you can say the market went through the roof. Because I had to go up on a lot of that. <laughs> and they did. And then about a year later, I said, well, gee, huh, if I go to the south wall of the of the barn, how much history can I get? And I started, and I got all of the history of the Dow Jones industry, and I'm still doing it today. That's amazing. That's, yeah. that's awesome. And I put, but I put, I put the president's who was president of the United States at the time. I put these red horizontal lines are the recessions and uh, big signs talking about the roaring 20s and the major crash, the big depression. And I have that, you, when you see the video, you'll see the roaring 20s going up like this on one corner of the barn. And then the, the great 
crash on the other side. And a friend of mine said, gee, Ralph, you cornered the market. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I saw one. So from that market history that you've really, you know, learned over the years. Yeah. Where, like, if you look at today, is there anything or any period of time that rhymes a little bit with what, where we are today in your mind? Well, everybody, because of the fear of a recession and the people going back to the Carter days in the 70s, um, I don't see the same massive tops in the, in the market that we saw in the 70s that was the, the arab oil crisis and that was the breaking of the of the the nifty 50 in those days was the uh was what we have today the fang stocks or you know the climate growth stocks um but um i i do sense that uh, with the market uh, being the way it is uh, in the last especially in the last couple of months there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And when you have uncertainty, you can have a lot of gyrations. And that's exactly what we're having. And we saw that in the 70s, wild swings. In fact, for 15 years, the Dow couldn't get above 1,000. It was my first 15 years in the business. I said, oh, my God, this is a crazy business. How did I get in here? <laughs> we couldn't get above 1,000. Not that I don't think we'll go to new highs, but I don't think it'll be anytime soon, especially with the concern that we have today uh, with the recession or fear of a, of a recession. Yeah, so so it feels a little bit like the '70s, a little bit, but 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 different in some ways. It sounds like, you know. Um, yes. Yeah. So and so when you th this is interesting. I remember when I first got into business, there was a, a few guys that had been in the business a long time who came up to me and I, one in particular it was an older guy he's and he actually smoked a cigar like can you imagine people smoke used to smoke cigars in these wall street firms anyway he comes up to me and he says yeah. you have no idea what what's going on in the world you have no idea you've never lived through the 70s let me tell you about what a bear market's about and i was young i had never seen a bear market we were in this massive bull market and i think about a lot of people that are in the business today that have never seen a bear market, really. So as I was saying, there was a guy who came to me and says, you have no idea what a bear market is like, yeah. you know, and, uh, and, you know, today we're only down not very much from the peak. And there's a lot of people in the business that have never seen a bear market. Um, and I, what's interesting is that even though I had this technical uh, background in education at that time, you know, the CMT, I still had never experienced a bear market and knew what to do exactly with one. Um, and I, I get the sense that that's a little bit what's happening. It happens over and over and over again in the markets and there's a relearning of things. Do you think that that's true? Do you think that I'm, uh, that's kind of what's happening a little bit with some of these um, portfolio managers and stuff that are running money today? Um, I, 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 yeah, I, I you know, I've been out of business for a while, so I, I, I don't have a real feel for clients like I used to have, you know, knocking mm. on doors and talking to people a lot. Um, you know what bothers me today that I know? I, I'm going to tell you, I know nothing about it. So this is robotic trading. Mm -hmm. You tell me about that. I, well. I, yeah, I mean, they, these, the computers are bouncing off 50 days and 200 day moving averages. They know this and then it's all programmed 
And I'm not sure the computers ever gone <laughs> for anything like this. Yeah, I feel I feel like that 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 could cause a lot of dislocations in the markets. I mean, and you see it. Yes. The, the the intraday uh, action is not the same as when I first got in the business. It's it is it is definitely more algorithmic. Getting fills is more difficult. We have algorithms that are fighting algorithms to fill orders. So we'll put it, we'll put a block order in, and then you know my broker is running an algorithm for me. <laughs> so and so everybody else is running an algorithm against us. So you see these, the intraday data just looks different. Uh, and it, it is a different, especially in the middle of the day, it's different. But I feel like the trends are still the same. The trends are still, uh, and, I, and sometimes yeah. the emotional reactions are faster now, I think, than they yeah. used to be. But Yes, um, no, I, I agree. No, the, ch the charts are still very, very helpful. And you're right. It's just follow the trend. I mean, <laughs> that's what we're all about. Uh, but I think the volatility, you just said it, and I totally agree with it. I think the volatility is more uh, dramatic because of uh, computers. They're all programmed the same way, kind of. I, I, again, I, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. But uh, Yeah, I, 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 it, I think there's a lot of people trying to do different things. Um, but uh, it, it, it tends to be a little bit of a... a cat and mouse during the middle of the day <laughs> trying to get things filled so it's not like you know when we had on the new york stock exchange we had everybody waving hands and stuff i mean you go on the new york stock exchange today and it's not the same thing <laughs> so which leads me to another question i had for you what what would you say the biggest changes are that you've seen seen on wall street in terms of how it's run today versus you know in the 70s yeah. or 80s other than well, computers. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say computers, definitely. <laughs> we didn't have them in the 60s and 70s. We had mm -hmm. to do everything by hand, which mm -hmm. wasn't so bad because you got a good feel. You know, uh, let me redirect that question. Uh, people okay. come up to me and say, Ralph, you've been doing this a long time. Has technical analysis changed since you came in the business? And my answer is no. Technical analysis is the same mm -hmm. it worked for me 50 years ago it works for me today uh i i only the only real question i have is the the volatility because of the computers the the, the way they react but other than that no uh no uh you know you're right we've had uh, a bull market bull market that lasts uh, quite a while and you know a generation uh, of investors kind of get used to that, but just look over your shoulder because nothing lasts forever. You get a bull market, you're going to get a bear market and that'll, that'll sting a little bit, but you learn from your mistakes. I mean, we all had to. Well, so what, what types of projects are you doing today? Is there anything that's uh, on your passion list these days that you, you've got going on or. Well, I'm, semi-retired I, I well let me put it this way um in 2017 i uh actually it was 2012 i retired it lasted two weeks okay so i'm never retired and what's fun about it i you know being with the computer and online uh i have my graphs always updating 
things for me. And I have a spreadsheet, uh, Excel spreadsheet that I hooked up to my Thomson Reuters system. And, and I have everything on my spreadsheet, all the ETFs, all the foreign markets, all the commodities, all the Dow stocks, all the S&P 500 stocks, et cetera. And I input, not, I don't have the computer do this. I input all the support, all the resistance levels, trends and everything like that. And as the market reacts today or whenever, uh, if any of the levels are broken, it flashes colors, you know, red if the support level is broken, green if the resistance levels are broken or the trends. So nothing moves without me knowing about it. And uh, I uh, find that very, very helpful because I'm, I'm aware and I have to update. I have to change the levels when they break, which is fun because it's almost like me updating the chart every mm -hmm. day. And I'm not physically doing it, but I'm physically watching. So um, I, I find that just extremely helpful. Yeah, I, I remember one time you told me that you did your some of your Dow predictions that way by just bottom yeah. up looking at the 30 and saying, okay, where are the targets for these? What does that impute the Dow to be at? Exactly. Uh, well, if you, if you feel the market is bottom, well, collectively – more more of the components have to look like they've bottomed and then mm -hmm. if they have uh, you can try to calculate their upside targets and then you divide by the divisor and you get a what if i call it a what if what if they hit these levels this is where the doubt can go so that was my what if study. well you know we could talk forever um but i i really appreciate your time and you know, coming on and talk talking with me and uh, sharing this with the audience, and I just wanted to see if there was anything I missed. Is there anything I missed that you'd like to tell people? Don't fight the primary trend. <laughs> there you go. That's that's it. Don't fight the trend. All right, Ralph. Thanks so much. Thank and you. Uh, I, I plan on being at that fifty-year uh, oh, meeting. Yeah, Let me tell you. Yeah, Definitely. you can't miss it. It's going to be awesome. And uh, we're writing, a, I think I just told you, we're going to write a, a book about all of the history of the organization, who came in, who did what, and, and how it impacted so many lives. Thank That's you very excellent. much. All right. Thanks a lot. Talk okay. to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The information in this podcast is informational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. WealthNet Investments is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where WealthNet Investments and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure.